recorded live. Hello, this is William Fink, and this is Christagenia on TalkShoe. Today is Friday, August 24th, 2012. Okay, last night I posted a new Saxon Messenger editorial. It's for the July Saxon Messenger. Of course, my schedule's running about four weeks late, and it will probably continue to do that through September, I'm sure. I'm taking a week off in two weeks, and, and I, I won't be seen. The name of the editorial is The Demise of Free Speech on the Internet. It, it explains what happened to Christogenier and, and to Prosync.org and, and some of the related sites what, with these um, that this ADL pressure on Internet service providers to shut down certain websites. It, it, um, it, it's my side of the story, of course. It, it's, um, I would appreciate it if it was well-linked and as many people, it, it got as much exposure as possible. It's probably not the greatest article I've written, but it's an okay article. And and it encapsulates um, the dangers and what's happened not only to Christogenia and Posting, but also, but also the dangers of um, allowing an organization, a, a basically racist Jewish supremacist organization like the ADL, to define hate and the boundaries of open and free speech on the Internet. That, that's a huge danger. It's a huge danger not only to the liberties of, of right-wing extremists like myself, it's a danger to the liberties of everybody, no matter where you are on the political spectrum. Everybody should be angry and should denounce the Internet service providers that feel free to close down websites because they don't like their politics or their religion. It's that simple. It, it's a danger to liberty everywhere. When we accept that our God-given rights can be taken away by man, government or not, right? The founders of our nation, with all their flaws, understood that our basic rights came from God. That's why they are inalienable. The day that we cede them to government, we have purchased our slavery, which is the state of the nation today, right? That doesn't mean we have to accept it, even though many of our people have, and that's why we're in this mess, right? Only Yahweh can save us. That's the bottom line. But I would appreciate all the links at po all, all the links possible and, and all the exposure possible for this article. It's on the front page of the Saxon Messenger. It'll be this month's editorial. Okay, the Gospel of Luke, chapter 12. In the last two chapters of Luke, we have seen Christ demonstrate that his opponents were of the race of Cain. Because only Cain could be held responsible for the blood of Abel. And that the serpents of the time of Christ, the contemporary walking, talking serpents and scorpions, were indeed related to the long-ago fall of Satan and the so-called angels, which had rebelled from God and had gone off into iniquity. The blood of the prophets is found in Mystery Babylon, 
for which see Revelation 18.24, which also connects the slayers of the prophets to that same entity. This understanding agrees perfectly with the statements in John in chapter 10 of his gospel, where we see that the Judeans opposing Christ were not of his sheep. And in John chapter 8 of his gospel, where we see that those opposed to Christ were of their father the devil, who was a murderer from the beginning, and only Cain could be called a murderer from the beginning. With certainty, Cain was a devil for the same reason that the Edomite Judas Iscariot was a devil, because he was a bastard seed. All of this also agrees with the first epistle of John, where it insists that Christians love one another. Contrasting Cain, where it says, not as Cain who was from of the wicked one and slaughtered his brother, and with delight he slaughtered him, because his deeds were evil, but those of his brother righteous. Now there is no evidence that Cain was ever a student of the serpent, but there is plenty of evidence that Cain was the offspring of a serpent. The mystery of iniquity is genetic, and opposed to that is the first law of Yahweh our God, which is that of kind after kind. It's been established here that Luke is basically the gospel for those of us who uphold 2C line. It's been established here that Luke, back when we covered and, and presented Luke chapters 1 and 2, Luke is the gospel for those who embrace covenant theology much more than the other Gospels. Not that, they, not that they have anything wrong, not that, not, not that they're not important, but there's more statements in Luke establishing the fact that evil is genetic and that good is genetic, and, and the fact that Yahweh, the God of the Old Testament, and Yahshua, the God of the New, came for the same people and are of the same mind. Which leads me to ask what the agenda is of all the Paul bashers in Christian identity who want to do away with Paul and Luke. When Luke is so important to the Christian identity cause. Just think about that. Basically, all the Paul bashers, and I've said this before, and some people don't like this language, but I don't care. All the Paul bashers are nothing but whores for the Jew. That's all they are. If you're a Paul Badger, you're a whore, and the Jew is your pimp. In chapter 12 of Luke, there is no break in the narrative from Luke chapter 11. And the chapter divisions are often set in arbitrary places anyway. In the Christogenian New Testament, the paragraph does not even break from the last verses of Luke chapter 11, which state, and from that time of his coming forth, when he came out and publicly spoke against the powers that be at the, at, the, at the temple, the scribes and the Pharisees began to press upon him cleverly and question him provokingly concerning many things, laying in wait for him to catch 
something from his mouth. It is a common theme in the gospel that the Pharisees were continually looking for something in the teachings of Christ by which they may accuse him, kind of like the ADL inspects websites, and have him condemned simply for the things which he spoke. That same attitude still exists among the Jews of today. Matthew twenty-two fifteen. Then going, the Pharisees took counsel how they may entrap him in speech. That is the, the, the most famous device of the Jew. Jeremiah 5.26 For among my people are found wicked men. They lay wait as he that sets snares. They set a trap. They catch men. Whenever you have the Jews in control, it's always Bolshevism all over again. From the Wisdom of Sirach, chapter 51, from the Apocrypha, the Septuagint Apocrypha. I will thank thee, O Lord and King, and praise thee, O God, my Savior. I will give praise unto thy, my name, thy name. For thou art my defender and helper, and hast preserved my body from destruction. And from the snare of the slanderous tongue, and from the lips that forge lies, and has been mine helper against mine adversaries, and has delivered me according to the multitude of thy mercies and greatness of thy name, from the teeth of them that were ready to devour me, and out of the hands of such as sought after my life, and from the manifold afflictions which I had, from the choking of fire on every side, and from the midst of the fire, which I kindled not. From the depths of the belly of hell, from an unclean tongue, and from living words, by an accusation to the king from an unrighteous tongue, my soul drew near, even unto death. My life was near to the hell beneath. They compassed me on every side, and there was no man to help me. That's heretical. Messianic prophecy, I'm sorry. I looked for the succor of men, but there was none. Then thought I upon mercy, O Lord, and upon thy acts of old, how thou deliverest such as wait for thee, and savest them out of the hands of the enemies. Then lifted I up my supplications from the earth and prayed for deliverance from death. I called upon the Lord, the Father of my Lord, very Christian statement, that he would not leave me in the days of my trouble and in the time of the proud when there was no help. Messianic prophecy, a very fitting prayer in retaliation to the, to the slanderers known as Jews today, right? The word diabolos is basically a slanderer, a false accuser. That's the role the Jew has played all throughout history. And with that, we will commence with Luke chapter 12. Verse 1. Upon these things, with the myriads of the crowd gathering so as to trample one another, he began to speak to his students. Above all, keep yourselves from the leaven 
which is hypocrisy of the Pharisees. The plain statement that the leaven of the Pharisees is their hypocrisy does not mean that the leaven of the Pharisees is limited to being their hypocrisy, right? And in Matthew 16, 2, we see that the leaven is also the doctrine of both the Pharisees and the Sadducees, right? Their doctrines are leaven as well. Their doctrines are hypocritical. Hypocrisy is a horrible thing. Pray to God that we can avoid it because it times we always catch ourselves in it, right? It's difficult. Verse 2. Now there is nothing concealed which shall not be revealed, and secret which shall not be made known. But rather, whatever you speak in the darkness shall be heard in the light, and that which you have spoken in the ear in the vaults shall be proclaimed upon the housetops. In Matthew chapter 10, this is recorded a little differently. And although Christ may have repeated these words several times at this point in his ministry, the accounts are roughly describing the same events. Matthew 10, 26 and 27. Therefore you should not fear them, for nothing is hidden which shall not be revealed, and secret which shall not be made known. That which I say to you in the darkness, you speak in the light. And that which you hear in the ear proclaim upon the houses. Of course, if they were followers of Christ, in Luke 12:2, that which they speak in the darkness is also that which he spoke, which he said to them in the darkness, right? In the early years of Christianity, when Christians were persecuted at the instigation of the Jews, the words of Christ were often whispered in the secret places. Later, Christianity eventually prevailed over the evils of Judaism and paganism, and the words of Christ were indeed shouted from the housetops. There are still some good Christians that do that today. They're just getting fewer and fewer in number. How can a Christian ever be afraid to speak the truth? Christians should never be afraid to speak the truth, and if they are, then they are not putting their faith in their God. If you have to whisper Christian truths in secret, whether they're truths or not, you're not putting your faith in your God. If you are persecuted for speaking the truth, be proud of it. Your reward is great in heaven. Verse 4, and I say to you, my friends, do not be afraid of those who condemn the body to death. Then after these things, do not have anything more which they may do. But I shall make known to you whom you should fear. You should fear he whom after that condemnation, that condemnation of the body, has authority or power or the means to cast it into Gehenna. The, the pronoun is missing in the Christogeny New Testament because it's missing in the Greek, right? Yeah, I say to you, him you should fear. Are not five sparrows sold for two a sorry? 
And not one of them is forgotten before Yahweh, but even the hairs of your heads have all been counted. Do not fear. You are worth more than many sparrows. And a sarion is a coin, which at the time of Christ was about one-sixteenth of a denarii, which was a day's pay, so a sparrow went for about 30 minutes labor, right? The word Gehenna that we see here in the text is actually a Hellenization. It's, it's a, it's, it's, well, well, it's half of a Hebrew word. Half the word is Hebrew, and it's, it's brought into Greek through the Septuagint, right? Sayer gives a concise history of Gehenna. The word is derived from the word gahi, or gay, a prefixed form of gaia, a form of the word gay, which means land. Yes, gay in Greek meant land or earth. And the word henna, which is hinam in the Old Testament. The word gaihenna appears in Joshua 18.16. And elsewhere in the Septuagint, it's not called gaihenna. It's called the valley of Inam or the valley of the son of Inam. And that's also in Joshua in chapter 15, in 2 Kings, 2 Chronicles, Jeremiah, several places. Hinnom, in the King James Version, was apparently the place of, 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 um, of the sacrifice of children. The sacrifice of children by fire occurred there, according to 2 Chronicles 33.6. And so its usage in this context is quite profound. Later, and in the time of Christ, at the very time of Christ, the place was apparently used for the burning of trash. In the Old Testament, it was used for the sacrifice, for putting the children through the fire. Christians should fear God alone and nobody else. Because only Yahweh our God has the power over our true life, which is in the spirit and not in the body of flesh. Christians should have no fear of Jew nor beast. We should only have fear of Yahweh our God. He has the authority to destroy our spirit. That doesn't mean he'll do it. Don't get that confused. Don't think that an Israelite is going into the lake of fire when the Fathers have promises that all Israel shall be saved. All the seed of Israel shall be saved. But he does have the authority to do that, the power, and of course he's God, right? So we should, well, we should fear him alone and be all the more thankful to him when he gives us life. Christians should never and this statement of Christ is not disconnected from what preceded. It is not disconnected from the idea that we should shout the truth from the housetops. Christians should never be afraid to speak the truth, that whatever you speak in the darkness shall be heard in the light. If we deny or conceal the truth before our fellows, what shall our God think of us when we stand before him. From Brenton Septuagint, here's um, a passage from 4 Maccabees, chapter 13, verses 12 through 17. 
which while we may or may not accept the book as canon, it nevertheless reflects the attitude that Christ also professes here. And I quote, And another said, Remember of what stock you are, and by the hand of our father Isaac, endured to be slain for the sake of piety. And one and all, looking on each other, serene and confident, said, Let us sacrifice with all our heart our souls to God who gave them, and employ our bodies for the keeping of the law. Let us not fear him who thinks he kills those who presume to destroy us merely because they kill our fleshly bodies. For great is the trial of soul and danger of eternal torment laid up for those who transgress the commandments of God. Let us arm ourselves, therefore, in the abnegation of the divine reasoning. If we suffer thus, Abraham and Isaac and Jacob will receive us, and all the fathers will commend us. The book for Maccabees is a moral one about the power of faith over fleshly desire. And the story here is about the seven brethren and their father who chose death over violation of the law at the command of Antiochus, the Greek ruler of Syria. Isaiah 51.7 Hearken unto me, you know righteousness. The people in whose heart is my law, fear ye not the reproach of men, Neither be ye afraid of their revilings. Screw Abraham Foxman, right? For the moth shall eat them up like a garment, and the word, the worm shall eat them like wool. But my righteousness shall be forever, and my salvation from generation to generation. Now I say to you, Luke 12, 8, all who would agree with me before men, then the Son of Man shall agree with him before the messengers of Yahweh. But he denying me before men, I shall deny before the messengers of Yahweh. I think the King James Version has there, all who would confess me before men. The verb here rendered agree is the verb homologeo, homologeo, Strong's number 3670. It means to speak together. It means to speak one language. It means to hold the same language with, in other words, to agree with, to agree, to allow, to admit, to confess, to concede, to grant. It means to speak the same thing. To confess or to profess Christ honestly is to speak the same thing with him, is to agree with all of his words. Whoever would agree with me before men, then the Son of Man shall agree with him before the angels of God. Nearly all mainstream Christian sects have serious problems with one statement of Christ's or another. And especially in Matthew 15:24, where he said that I have not been sent except to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. 
Christians deny one of his statements and they're not agreeing with him before men. They're denying him before men. Disagree with one of his statements and the Son of Man shall deny you before the messengers of God. Christians can never deny the truth of the gospel before men. We should never try to split hairs with it. We should never try to compromise it. Or we shall indeed suffer for it in the much greater judgment to come. Daniel 12.2 And many of them that sleep in the dust of the earth shall awake, some to everlasting life. This is talking about Israelites. Broken cisterns, bastards, non-Adamic races, they're not going to awake from the dust of the earth. They don't have the spirit through which is the resurrection. They don't have it. There is no resurrection for them. They're not candidates in Daniel 12.2 at all. This is talking about us. And many of them that sleep in the dust of the earth shall awake, some to everlasting life, and some to shame and everlasting contempt. Yeah, you deny Christ, you're a screw-up. You'll be saved on account of the fathers. As Paul says, when a man's works burn up totally in a fire in 1 Corinthians chapter 3, he himself will be saved, right? But everlasting contempt is obviously, to me, the lack of any reward before God for your works. Because they've all burnt in the fire. Many may take these words of Christ here in Luke, which are also recorded in Matthew 10, verses 32 and 33, and limit them to refer to an outright denial of Christ himself. That's the way the mainstream churches try to take it. And when they accept it that way, that then they don't have to agree with all his words. I would think that they mean something much deeper. For while many of us profess Christ with our lips, we deny him in one word or another because we pick and choose which scriptures we want to accept and which scriptures we want to reject. In essence, denying any part of the gospel is a denial of Christ. At 1 Samuel 2, verse 30, Yahweh said, Them that honor me will I honor, and they that despise me shall be lightly esteemed. He's talking again about Israel, right? Luke 9:26. Indeed, whoever would be ashamed of me and my words, him the Son of Man shall be ashamed of when he should come in the honor of his and that of the Father and of the holy messengers. 1 Timothy, chapter 6, verses 3 through 5, the words of Paul. If anyone teaches differently and does not capitulate to sound words, those of our Prince Yahshua Christ, and to the doctrine in accordance with piety. He is conceited, standing upon nothing, but is mad for inquiries and arguments over semantics from which come envy, strife, blasphemies, wicked suspicions, constant contentions, corrupting the minds of men and defrauding them of the truth, supposing piety to be a means of gain. Now I say to you all who would agree with me before men, not profess, saying, 
I believe in Jesus is not enough. All who would agree with me before men. Then the Son of Man shall agree with him before the messengers of Yahweh. But he denying me before men, I shall deny before the messengers of Yahweh. Paul says, if anyone teaches differently and does not capitulate to sound words, those of our Prince Yahshua Christ, we must capitulate to all of his words. 2 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 1. Now I myself, Paul, exhort you by the gentleness and fairness of the anointed, who concerning stature and humble among, am humble among you, but being absent and bold towards you. But I want, not being present, that you would be bold with the confidence with which I reckon you should be daring towards certain others who are reckoning us as walking in accordance with the flesh. Paul's telling these Christians to be bold with their doctrine and their beliefs. Indeed, walking in the flesh, we do not serve in accordance with the flesh, for the arms of our warfare are not fleshly, but through Yahweh they are able to destroy strongholds. Destroying reasonings and every bulwark raising itself up against the knowledge of Yahweh and taking captive every thought into the obedience of the anointed. Also being in readiness to avenge all disobedience whenever you shall have fulfilled your obedience. The children of Israel, they don't have any opportunity to avenge disobedience arise and thresh, Micah chapter 4, until they themselves learn that the laws of God are a necessary component of any decent society. When we repent and learn to be good, then we will be able to quash disobedience. The calling of Christ is a calling of obedience unto God. Hosea 2 says, speaking of Israel, and she shall follow after her lovers, but she shall not overtake them. And she shall seek them, but shall not find them. Then shall she say, I will go and return to my first husband. A return of the children of Israel to Christ is a return to their first husband, that mean God of the Old Testament. I will go and return to my first husband, for then it was better with me than now. The first husband is Yahweh, manifest, as Yahshua Christ come in the flesh. Daniel chapter 7, verses 13 and 14, I saw in the night visions, and behold, one like the Son of Man came with the clouds of heaven, and came to the Ancient of Days, and they brought him near before him. And there was given him dominion and glory and a kingdom that all people, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away, and his kingdom that which shall not be destroyed. 
The call to Christ is a call to obedience. Daniel 7.27 And the kingdom and the dominion and the greatness of the kingdom under the whole heaven shall be given to the people of the saints of the Most High, whose kingdom is an everlasting kingdom, and all dominions shall serve and obey him. Start obeying God ahead of time, and maybe we'll have a part in the call to arise and thresh, in the call to avenge disobedience, as Paul speaks about in 1 Corinthians chapter 10. I'm sorry, in 2 Corinthians chapter 10. Luke 12, verse 10. And all who would speak a word against the Son of Man, it shall be forgiven him. But to whom should blaspheme against the Holy Spirit, it shall not be forgiven. We see a similar statement by Christ in Matthew chapter 12, verses 31 and 32, and I will read that. For this reason I say to you, every error, every sin, and blasphemy shall be remitted or forgiven for men. But blasphemy of the Spirit shall not be remitted. And whoever should speak a word against the Son of Man, it shall be remitted for him or forgiven for him. But whoever should speak against the Holy Spirit, it shall not be remitted for him neither in this age nor in that which is coming. That phrase belongs in Matthew, neither in this age nor in that which is coming. It's actually um, added to this passage in Luke chapter 12, verse 10, by the Codex Beze, but it doesn't belong in Luke. It's not in any of the other codices. Not that it matters. It still stands because it is in Matthew chapter 12. The Greek word hagios, in the biblical context, hagios means separated and devoted to the purposes of God, of Yahweh our God, in the Bible. In the vernacular Greek language, it meant separated and devoted to the purposes of a God, right? Something devoted at a, at a pagan temple, for instance. This word hagios is the word translated as holy in the phrase Holy Spirit and it means separated and devoted to the purposes of God, according to Joseph Thayer and the vernacular Greek usage. We can see from passages found in the Bible at Exodus chapter 19, verses 5 and 6, for instance, in 1 Kings 8, in 1 Peter, 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 9, where Peter calls his audience, his intended specific audience, a chosen race, a holy people, a separate people. We see that this mandate for Israel to be a separate people never changed. In the Old Testament, the word for holy comes from the Hebrew word kodesh, Strong's Hebrew number 6944. Kodesh primarily means according to Strong's Concordance, apartness. The word holy means apartness.
The phrase Holy Spirit is found in the Old Testament at Psalm 5111 and Isaiah 63, verses 10 and 11. And from those passages, it seems to refer both to the presence of the Spirit of God and to the Spirit of God bestowed upon the Adamic man. This is what Christ and the apostles refer to when they tell Christians that we are not of the world, as John explains in the fourth chapter of his first epistle. That those who are not of the Adamic race have indeed been created by the world, those of the Adamic race, whose seed is in them, they're born from of God. And if their seed is in them, they can't sin. Sin won't be attributed to them. They'll be forgiven. Every manner of sin shall be forgiven a man except blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit, the spirit of apartness, the spirit of the separateness of our race that we were commanded to be from God. Be ye holy, because I am holy. The context of John's message refers to the children of Israel exclusively. John also mentions a sin, which is unto death. Where he says in 1 John 5.16, from the King James Version, If any man see his brother sin a sin which is not under death, he shall ask, meaning to ask in prayer, and he, meaning God, shall give him life for them that sin not unto death. There is a sin unto death. I do not say that he shall pray for it. For this reason, I believe that blasphemy of the Holy Spirit or blasphemy of the Spirit is the promotion of integration and race mixing. It's the violation of that commandment for us to be holy, for us to be apart, for us to be separate. We're told that we would be a separate people. The sin causes, the sin unto death causes the death of the Adamic race, which in turn is an act of war against that spirit which God bestowed upon Adamic man by blaspheming the Holy Spirit. One seeks to rebel against God and destroy his Adamic creation, where the first promise of salvation is in clinging to our own race as expressed in Genesis 3.22. The man sinned. The man ate of the tree of knowledge of good and evil. Genesis 3.22, And Yahweh God said, Behold, the man has become as one of us to know good and evil. And now, lest he put forth his hand and take also of the tree of life and eat, and live forever. That's the first first promise of salvation, is to grasp the tree of life. The tree of life is Christ, Yahweh, come in the flesh, 
and his race. I am the vine, ye are the branches. The tree of the knowledge of good and evil of the fallen angels and all the mixed races. That has to be. They knew good. They experienced good at one point in their history and they rebelled and turned to evil. Blasphemy of the Holy Spirit is the promotion of race mixing. The violation of the instruction in Genesis 3.22 that the Adamic man would eat of his own tree, would eat of the tree of life, and in that manner he would have salvation and live forever. Luke 12, verse 11. And when they bring you in before the assembly halls and the rulers and the authorities, do not have concern for how or what you should answer or what you should speak. For the Holy Spirit shall teach you the Spirit of God, which is holy, and we're commanded to be holy as he is holy, right? For the Holy Spirit shall teach you in that hour the things which it is necessary to speak. A lot of people use this for an excuse that they don't really need to know the scripture, right? They don't need to that they don't need to read the Bible because the um the Holy Spirit will tell them what to say, right? Well, that's not the way it works. Paul of Tarsus expected those to whom he brought the gospel to be readers of the scripture. From Acts chapter 17, I quote then the brethren forthwith sent off Paul and Silas by night to Beroia, who departed, arriving in the assembly hall of the Judeans in Beroia from Thessalonia. These were of a more noble race than those in Thessalonica, who accepted the word with all eagerness, each day examining the writings, if these things would hold thusly. So the many from among them believed and of the noble Greek women and men, not a few. Paul expected these people to be familiar with the scriptures and commended the Broians because they were, because they studied the scriptures. Christ also, for instance, in John 5.39, expected those hearing of him to be familiar with the scriptures, where he tells the people, search the scriptures, for in them you think you have eternal life, and they are they which testify of me. Paul wrote Timothy in 2 Timothy chapter 4 to preach the word, be instant in season and out of season. And that requires a familiarity with the writings. Paul also wrote Timothy in 2 Timothy 3.16 that all scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness. Both James and Peter extol the value of a knowledge in the scripture in their epistles. Paul also appeals to or directly quotes from the scripture in all of his epistles. One should not use these words of Christ as an excuse 
not to study his word. It is our study of the written word which works with the spirit in us by which the spirit of God inspires us. That's how the Holy Spirit tells us what to think because we have a deep well in the study of Scripture to draw on. Colossians 3.16, the words of Christ must dwell in you abundantly. You only get that by reading them, right? With all wisdom, teaching, and advising each other with psalms, hymns, spiritual songs, in grace, singing in your hearts to Yahweh. Verse 13. Then spoke to him one from the crowd, Teacher, tell my brother to divide the inheritance with me. And he said to him, Man, who appointed me judge or divider over you? Then he said to him, You watch. Keep yourself from all greediness, because not in any abundance is life itself from its possessions. Christ wanted no part in the earthly quarrels over material possessions. And Christians should remember this in their prayers. Don't go praying for material things. Only pray, as he told us, for that which we needed, for that which we need for this moment. And we'll have the means to provide it. Matthew chapter 5, verses 38 through 42. And you have heard that it has been said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. Now I say to you, not to oppose evil, but whoever slaps you on your right cheek, turn for him also the other. Of course, this message is for, by, and about the children of Israel, right? This is a message to the sheep that has nothing to do with the wolves. And to him desiring for you to be judged and to receive your cloak, give up to him also your shirt. And whoever shall press you for one mile, go with him too. Don't go two miles with a wolf. Don't even go one. Give to him asking you, and you should not turn away from him wishing to borrow from you. Christ wanted no part in the earthly quarrels over material possessions. The good Christian, having an having a contest in the material of the inheritance of his brother should just cede the property to his brother. If he needs it that bad, he could have it. That's the Christian attitude. Verse 16. Then he spoke to them a parable, saying, The land of a certain wealthy man produced bountifully, and he had reasoned within himself, saying, What shall I do since I do not have a place where I may gather my fruits? And he said, This I shall do. I shall take down my storehouse, and I shall build one greater. And I shall gather there all the grain and my goods. And I will say to my soul, Soul, you have many goods laid up for many years. Rest, eat, drink, and be happy. Then Yahweh said to him, Fool, 
this night your life is demanded of you. The things which you have prepared, for whom shall they be? So is he storing up riches for himself and not for God. All of the wealth we may amass will not do us any good when we die. From Luke chapter 18, verses 18 through 23, and one of the leaders questioned him, saying, Good teacher, what should I do that I may inherit eternal life? And Yahshua said to him, Why do you call me good? No one is good except one, Yahweh. Know the commandments. You should not commit adultery. You should not murder. You should not steal. You should not testify falsely. Honor your father and mother. Then he said, All these things I have kept from my youth. And hearing it, Yahshua said to him, Then one thing is left for you. All, whatever you have, sell and distribute to the poor, and you shall have treasure in heavens. Then come, follow me. But hearing these things, he became very grieved, for he was exceedingly wealthy. Everything taught by Christ in this chapter up to this point is reflected in the 49th Psalm. Psalm 49, verse 1. Hear this, all ye people, give ear, all ye inhabitants of the world, both low and high, rich and poor together. My mouth shall speak wisdom, and the meditation of my heart shall be of understanding. I will incline my ear to a parable. I will open my dark sayings upon the harp. Wherefore should I fear in the days of evil, when the iniquity of my heels shall compass me about? They that trust in their wealth and boast themselves in the multitude of their riches, none of them can by any means redeem his brother nor give to God a ransom for him. For the redemption of their soul is precious, and it ceases forever that he should still live forever and not see corruption. In other words, all the wealth you have is not going to buy you eternal life. For he seeth that wise men die. Likewise, the fool and the brutish person perish and leave their wealth to others. Their inward thought is that their houses shall continue forever and their dwelling places to all generations. They call their lands after their own names. Nevertheless, man being in honor abides not. He is like the beasts that perish. This their way is their folly, yet their posterity approve their sayings. Like the sheep that are laid in the grave, death shall feed on them, and the upright shall have dominion over them in the morning. Those who are still walking shall have dominion over them in the morning. And their beauty shall consume in the grave from their, from their dwelling. But God will redeem my soul from the power of the grave. In other words, if you don't trust in your wealth and you live righteously. But God will redeem my soul from the power of the grave, for he shall receive me. Be not thou afraid when one is made rich, when the glory of his house is increased. For when he dies, he shall carry nothing away. His glory shall not descend after him to the underworld. 
or to the grave, depending on your perspective. But while he lived, he blessed his soul, and men will praise thee when thou doest well to thyself. He shall go to the generation of his fathers. They shall never see light. Man that is an honor and understands not is like the beasts that perish. Many of the things Christ taught were taught in the Old Testament. That's the point. These things have been with us, not for 2,000 years, but for three, and in many cases, four. And we still don't get it. Verse 22, then he said to his students, for this reason I say to you, do not have care for the soul, what you should eat, nor for the body, what you should be clothed in. For the soul is greater than food and the body than clothing. Observe the crows, or the ravens, that they do not sow, nor do they harvest. With them is no treasury nor storehouse, and Yahweh feeds them. How much more are you worth than the birds? Job 38:41. Who provides for the raven his food? When his young ones cry unto God, they wander for lack of meat. Well, of course, God provides for them. That's the point. Verse 25 of Luke 12. Who caring among you is able to add a cubit to his stature? Therefore, if you are not able to do the least, why should you care about the rest? Observe the lilies, how they grow. They neither labor, nor do they spin yarn. But I say unto you, not even Solomon in all his honor was clothed as one of these. And if the grass in the field is today, and tomorrow being cast into a furnace, Yahweh clothes thusly, how much more you, you of little faith, then you do not seek that which you, that, you do not seek what you should eat and what you should drink and do not get excited. Don't panic if you have no food and no clothing. For all of these things the nations of the world seek after, but your Father knows that you have need of these things. Moreover, you seek his kingdom, and these things shall be added to you. Fear not, little flock because it has pleased your Father to give you the kingdom. Christ must have taught these precepts many times during his three-and-a-half-year ministry. A version of this teaching which is quite similar, but not precisely the same, is also found in the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew chapter 6. Of course, his words here do not mean that we should walk around naked and hungry and thirsty. Rather, they challenge us to consider whether or not we should put our trust in ourselves, how we can magnify ourselves or make ourselves appear before men, or whether we should put our trust and our faith in God, how God shall care for us, and whether he shall make sure that we are provided for, not caring what men think of us. Psalm 37 also, also teaches much of what Christ teaches here, and I will only read the opening three verses. Fret not thyself because of evildoers, neither be thou envious against the workers of iniquity. 
For they shall soon be cut down like the grass, and wither as the green herb. Trust in Yahweh and do good. Trust in Yahweh and do good. So shalt thou dwell in the land, and verily thou shalt be fed. Christians should worry about doing good by their brethren, by their kin, by their race, and God will make sure that we have the ability to eat and to clothe ourselves. Christianity is the world's only true religion, and it's not really ever been practiced. Luke 12, 33. You sell your belongings and give charity. Make for yourselves purses which do not grow old, an unfailing treasure in the heaven, which thief does not approach, nor moth corrupt. For where your treasure is, there also your heart shall be. Galatians chapter 6, verses 7 and 8. Do not be deceived. Yahweh is not mocked. Indeed, whatever a man should sow, that he shall also reap. Because he who is sowing for his own flesh, from the flesh shall he reap destruction. But he who is sowing for the Spirit, from the Spirit shall he reap eternal life. A lot of people have asked me, well, what about the Jews? They're rich. What about these ungodly people? They're rich. What about those ungodly people? They're rich. They seem to do well. Yahweh's not concerned for those people, right? Yahweh's concern for the children of Israel. Yahweh uses those rich bastards as weapons of our chastisement when we refuse to cede to his will, when we refuse to keep his laws. What about the rich Jews? If Yahweh chastises you and corrects you, you're a son. If you're not chastised and corrected, chances are you're a bastard, Hebrews 12.8. Don't worry about the rich Jews. They'll get theirs. Worry about your Israelite brethren. There are people, even identity Christians, who would amass silver and gold and other such things. I find it repulsive. This is contrary to the teachings of the gospel. In response to such people, James says in chapter 5 of his epistle, Come on, those who are wealthy now, weep, crying out upon your coming hardships. If you're a child of Israel and you are wealthy, you're going to be tried. Your wealth is putrefied and your garments have become moth-eaten. Your gold and silver are corroded, and their corrosion shall be for a testimony to you, and it shall eat your flesh as fire. You have saved up for the last days. Behold, the wages of the laborers reaping your fields which have been withheld by you cry out. The idea here is that if you're rich, you're shortchanging your brethren. If you're a child of Israel, if you're a child of God and you're wealthy, 
You're shortchanging your brethren. Behold, the wages of the laborers reaping your fields which have been withheld by you cry out. And the cries of the harvesters have entered into the ears of the prince of armies. You have lived luxuriously and lewdly upon the earth. You have nourished your hearts in a day of slaughter. You have condemned. You have murdered the righteous who did not oppose you. If you can amass wealth, you're shortchanging your brethren. We'll speak more about that shortly. Your loins must be girded and lamps burning, verse 35. And you be like men expecting their master when he may return from the wedding, that coming and knocking immediately they, they may open up for him. Blessed are those servants who the master coming shall find awake. Truly I say to you that he shall gird himself and have them recline, and coming forth he shall serve them. That word Gregorio may mean awake, it may mean to watch as a verb. Gregoricos, the adjective, is watchful. The noun Gregoria is wakefulness. It means to be alert, right? Even in the second and in the third watch, the watches of the night were split into four. Each watch was two hours. The second watch, I'm sorry, they were split into four. Each watch was three hours. The second watch was from midnight to 3 a.m. Even in the second watch, and in the third watch, he should come and find us, we blessed are they. But you must know this, that if the master of the house had known in which hour the thief comes, he would not have allowed his house to be dug through. And you also must be ready, because in the hour which you do not expect comes the Son of Man. The watches were split up between 6 a.m. and 6 p.m. and 6 a.m. I'm confused, right? Christians are told to deny themselves and follow Christ. Christians are told at Matthew 16, 24, to deny themselves and follow Christ. And to love their brethren. Christians are told to love their brethren. John chapter 13, chapter 15, 1 John chapter 3. Paul said at 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, and I quote verse 9, Now concerning brotherly love, you have no need to be written to, for you yourselves are taught by God for which to love one another. Christ came to give his life for his brethren. Christ came as their kinsman redeemer. His purpose was to serve his brethren. Therefore, in Luke chapter 22, verses 25 through 27, he basically tells us to follow that example, where he says, the kings of the nations rule over them, meaning rule over the nations, and those having authority over them are called benefactors. But not so with you. Rather, he who is greater among you must be as the inferior, and he who is a leader as the servant. For who is greater, he dining or he serving? Is it not he who is reclining, he who is dining? But I... These are the words of Christ. But I, in the midst of you, am as he who is serving. If we are to follow Christ and love our brethren, 
and take up our cross and follow him, as it says in Matthew, then we are to serve our brethren. We are not to serve ourselves of them. When Christ comes, if he finds us serving our brethren, we shall be rewarded, and he shall serve us. If he does not find us doing so, we very likely will have no reward. Then Peter said, Prince, to us do you speak this parable, or also to all? And the prince said, Who then is the faithful, sensible steward, whom the master appoints over his attendants to give the allotment of grain at the proper time? Blessed is that servant who coming his master finds doing thus. Truthfully, I say to you that he shall appoint him over all his belongings. But if that servant should say in his heart, my master delays coming, and he begins to beat the men servants and maidservants, then to eat and drink and be drunken, the master of that servant shall arrive in a day in which he does not expect, and in an hour in which he does not know, and he will cut him in two, and he shall set his portion with the faithless. If we have wealth, it is not necessarily a blessing from God, but often it is a test from God. And it was in the case of Job. Job's wealth was, had, had become a test of his faith, right? Often our wealth is also a commission to fulfill a purpose of God. And he tells us that in Deuteronomy chapter 8. And I'll read from verse 16. Who fed you in the wilderness with manna, which thy fathers knew not, that he might humble you, and then he might prove you, or test you, to do thee good at thy later end? And you say in your heart, my power and the might of mine hand has gotten me this wealth. But thou shalt remember Yahweh thy God. For it is he that gives thee power to get wealth, that he may establish his covenant, which he swear unto thy fathers, as it is this day. If you have wealth, you did not. Don't be fooled into thinking that you got your wealth by your own hand. It was given to you from God, and it was given to you for a reason. And here he told the children of Israel in Deuteronomy that it was given to them that he can keep his promises to the fathers to establish the covenants that he made with them. And it shall be, if thou do at all forget Yahweh thy God and walk after other gods and serve them and worship them, I testify against you this day that you shall surely perish. As the nations which Yahweh destroyed before your face, so shall you perish, because you would not be obedient unto the voice of Yahweh your God. If Yahweh has enriched us, it is only that we may give the allotment of grain at the proper time, that we may be good stewards and in turn provide for our brethren. 
and not just for any white people, provide for our brethren who are his servants, who are obedient to him, who are moral and upright people. If he returns and finds us doing that, we shall have great reward. If he finds us otherwise, if we've used the wealth he has given us to fill our own bellies and, and, and to enjoy life, Christians should not enjoy life. Christians should find life to be austere and spiritual. And when I speak that Christians should not enjoy life, I mean as the world enjoys life in partying, in profligacy, in lasciviousness. If he finds us in partying and profligacy and lasciviousness, then we've already had our reward. Luke 12, verse 47. Now that servant who, knowing the will of his master and not preparing or doing according to his will, shall be clubbed much. But he, not knowing yet doing such worthy of blows, shall be clubbed little. All to whom much is given, much shall be sought from him. If you have gifts from God, you better be employing them in his service, right? And to whom much is committed, far more shall be demanded of him. If you have wealth of God, then you better be doing that, using that for his service. That's the way it is. Having this knowledge and not acting on it, we invite far more punishment upon ourselves than those who are ignorant. For that reason, James, in his epistle, says in chapter 3, You must not produce many teachers, my brethren, knowing that we shall receive a greater judgment. Verse 49, I have come to cast fire on the earth, and what do I purpose if it is already ignited? The word of truth works within the people of God, and it causes them to conflict with evil. Therefore, Peter says in the first chapter of his first epistle, and I quote from verse 3, Blessed is Yahweh, even the Father of our Prince Yahshua Christ, who according to his great mercy has engendered us from above, we're born from above, into a living hope through the resurrection of Yahshua Christ from among the dead, for an inheritance incorruptible and undefiled and unfading, being kept in the heavens for us, who are being preserved by the power of Yahweh through faith for a salvation prepared to be revealed in the last time, in which you must rejoice. If for a short time now it is necessary, being pained by various trials, we're not pained by various trials unless we attempt to keep the word of our God. Those people of our race are partying with the devil in New York, in Las Vegas, in Chicago. They don't really care about trials. They don't know why they're punished and they don't know why they succeed. They're just out to enjoy themselves, right? In which you must rejoice if for a short time now it is necessary being pained by various trials in order that the test of your faith, much more valuable than gold which is destroyed even being tested by fire, would be found in praise and honor and dignity at the revelation of Yahshua Christ 
whom not having seen you love, in whom now not seeing but believing you rejoice with an indescribable and illustrious joy, acquiring the result of your faith, preservation of your souls. I have come to cast fire upon the earth. And what do I purpose if it is already ignited? The word of God working in our spirits causes those fiery trials when we separate ourselves from the world. Now I have an immersion to be immersed in. And how am I constrained until when it should be completed? Now I have a baptism to be baptized in. And how am I constrained until when it should be completed? Here Christ tells us what his true baptism is. And he can only be referring to his own trial, which was his crucifixion and resurrection. This is a long time after Christ was baptized in water. This is perhaps a couple of years after Christ was baptized in water. And he has a baptism to be baptized in. And it's not in water. Therefore, Paul, who told the Ephesians that there was one Lord, one faith, and the one baptism, there is one Christian baptism, Ephesians 4, 5, Paul also asked the Romans, or are you ignorant that as long as we are baptized in Christ Yahshua into his death, we are baptized? As long as we are immersed in Christ Yahshua into his death, we are immersed. There is one baptism in Christ. It is in his death. It is not in water. Water was the baptism of John the Baptist. It was not the baptism of Christ. The words of John the Baptist from Matthew 3.11, and I quote, Indeed, I immerse you in water for repentance, but he coming after me is more powerful than me, of whom I am not worthy to carry his sandals. He shall immerse you in the Holy Spirit and in fire. I have come to cast fire upon the earth. And what would I if it were already kindled? Accepting the death of Christ and the reasons for his death, we immerse ourselves in him, he being the Lamb of God. We find salvation in his blood just as our ancient fathers were spared of the blood of the Lamb in the Passover in Egypt. Being immersed in his death, we survive the fiery trials of this life. Did you suppose that I have come to spread... I'm sorry. Do you suppose that I have come to offer peace in the earth? No, I say to you, but rather division. For there shall be from this time five divided in one house, three against two, and two against three. Father shall be divided against son, and son against father, mother against daughter, and daughter against mother, mother in law against wife, and wife against mother in law. 
is a similar passage in Matthew chapter 10, verses 34 through 36. You suppose that I have come to put peace upon the earth. I have not come to put peace but a sword. For I have come to divide a man against his father, and a daughter against her mother, and a bride against her mother-in-law. And a man's enemies are those of his own house. Here Christ, Christ quotes or at least alludes to Micah 7, 6. Micah chapter 7, verse 6, which reads, For the son dishonors the father. The daughter rises up against her mother. The daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. A man's enemies are the men of his own house. And so we have it today. There is nothing new under the sun. No message divides families and households today like the message of a need for racial purity found in Christian identity covenant theology. For this reason, does father fight with son? And for this reason, are son and daughter-in-law divided against the family they married into? Christianity is not about sick ideas of peace. Sick ideas of peace. Sick because they are usually include they usually include placating aliens and sinners. The 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 warm and fuzzy hippie idea of peace today is a peace that placates aliens and sinners. perverts, and Jews. A true peacemaker is one who is willing to obey the laws of God and who reproves his fellows when they do not obey those laws. Contrary to the profession of the phony Judeo-Christians, Christ is not about peace. Rather, Christ is about obedience to God, love for your own kind, and the consequences of violating those precepts. Identity Christians today can imagine just what it was like for Christians in ancient pagan Rome. We are often shunned and excoriated by our own families because, like the ancient Roman Christians, we refuse to accept the universal religion of the empire. There is little difference between modern ecumenism and the universal paganism of old Rome, where just about anything became acceptable so long as one worshipped Caesar. Today, just about anything is acceptable so long as one worships Uncle Sam. Today, identity Christians are for the most part merely shunned. But in the first few centuries of the Christian era, our forebears were often reported, arrested, and martyred merely for professing Christ. With Jews in full control of our government now, do not think that that can't happen again here in this age. And in many cases, it already has. Verse 54. Then he said also to the crowd, when you see a cloud rising up in the west, immediately you say that a thunderstorm comes, and so it happens. And when the south wind is blowing, you say that there shall be hot weather, and it happens. Hypocrites, you know to examine the appearance of the earth and of the heaven. 
Yet how do you not know to examine this time? Well, I do not find a similar analogy anywhere in Scripture. The meaning is obvious, that if the opponents of Christ could read the plain signs encountered in daily life, then they should have been able to recognize him, yet they could not. Their lack of such ability, coupled with their claims to be people of Israel, and therefore people of God, made them hypocrites. My sheep hear my voice. You do not hear my voice because you are not my sheep. Verse 57. Now why also from among yourselves do you not judge that which is righteous? For as you go forward with your opponent to the magistrate, while on the road, offer work to be released by him, that they not then drag you off to the judge, and the judge hand you over to the bailiff, and the bailiff cast you into prison. I say to you, by no means, by no means would you depart from there until, until you have repaid even the last cent. This passage, too, is also found in Matthew's version of the account of the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew chapter 5, verses 25 and 26. And, and that's not evidence that the Bible is out of order. And I've heard that asserted many times. That's not evidence that the order of things in Luke is different than the order of things in Matthew, that one of the gospel writers got it mixed up. That's only evidence that Christ repeated a lot of these stories often. And in Matthew's version of the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew recorded that portion for posterity, and Luke didn't. But here, Luke recorded it for posterity. We have different witnesses and different perspectives of a three-and-a-half-year ministry where Christ probably repeated many things over and over. So it's not proof that the gospel is out of order. It's only proof that Christ had given some of these stories, had related some of these teachings at diverse times over and over, which only makes sense, right? That there was no newspapers and books in those days, right? If you're an oral teacher, then you have to repeat yourself the same story at many different times. That's the way it is. Proverbs 25, verse 8. I'm going to read this from the NAS because the King James Version is pretty bad here. Do not go out hastily to argue your case. Otherwise, what will you do in the end when your neighbor puts you to shame? Here the theme continues from verse 13. When two men wanted Yahshua to rightly divide their inheritance, evidently because they could not come to an agreement. Christians need not trouble themselves with disputes over worldly riches. And if they do, chances are they will end up worse off than if they would have just simply paid whatever was demanded of them in the first place, or if they walked away without trying to collect damages. Paul addresses this same issue in 1 Corinthians chapter 6. Dare any of you, 
having a matter against another, have it decided before the unrighteous and not before the saints. Do you not know that the saints will judge the society? And if by you the society is judged, are you unworthy of the smallest trials? Do you not know that we will judge angels, let alone the things of this life? So then, if you should have trial of the per- things pertaining to this life, those who esteem themselves least in the assembly, the humblest, the most humble people, those will be set to judge. I speak from respect to you. So is there among you not even one wise who would be able to decide among his brethren? In other words, we don't take fellow Christians to the pagan courts, right? We don't take fellow Christians before a Jewish judge. We don't take fellow Christians into the municipal and county court system, right? But brother is brought to trial by brother, and this before those not believing. So then, already there is altogether discomfiture among you, seeing that you have matters for judgment among yourselves. Even having a dispute among us is a problem. Why would you still not more be wronged? Take me to court, and you'll probably expect to get screwed by the Jewish judge, right? That's what Paul's saying here. Take a brother to court, and you should expect to be screwed by the court system. It's a rhetorical question. Why should you not still more be wronged? Why should you not still more be defrauded? You would rather do wrong and defraud by taking a brother to court. And this of a brother? Or do you not know that the unjust will not inherit the kingdom of Yahweh? Do not be led astray, neither fornicators, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor effeminates, nor homosexuals, nor thieves, nor covetous, nor drunkards, nor railers, nor rapacious shall inherit the kingdom of Yahweh. And these things some of you may have been, but you have cleansed yourselves. Moreover, you have been sanctified. Moreover, you have been deemed fit in the name of Prince Joshua Christ and in the spirit of our God. The lesson in Luke, if your brother has a cause against you and he's bringing you to court, you're a lot better just paying what you what what he claims you owe you'll do a lot better in the eyes of god just paying what he claims you owe just pay it and walk away if you can't afford it as christ says here while on the road in other words while on your way to court offer work to be released by him if you can't afford it give him a few days work or whatever it takes and go on your way, and you'll be better off. We don't have. Christians don't have issues over material wealth. We take it on a chin, and we move on. That's the lesson throughout this chapter of Luke. That's why Christ wouldn't get involved in splitting an inheritance. One brother should have just given to the other brother whatever he thought he had coming, and he would have been much better off in the eyes of God. So we don't fight over material. We don't care about material gain. We don't care about material wealth. When you don't care about material wealth, not only do you have a lot less worries in the world, but the Jew doesn't really care about you. When you're a fat cat, you're a target for the Jew, right? 
when you don't care about material wealth, well, the enemies of God, they may disdain you, but they'll probably leave you alone because you're probably pretty broke, right? That's the way Christians should be. Praise Yahweh and thank you for listening. I'll be here next week with Luke chapter 13. I'll be here tomorrow with Sword Brethren with um, our series on fascism, part three, our discussion of fascism. It'll be interesting, I pray. Good night. Thanks again. Praise Yahweh. God bless you all.